Perhaps you noticed today is Epiphany Sunday. Maybe if it wasn't mentioned, many of us might not notice. We don't make much of Epiphany. Typically, our Christmas season begins with Thanksgiving and ends on December 26. After this, we're kind of in this post-holiday coma brought on by too much sugar and too much noise and too many activities and too much spending and maybe too much family time. But the church calendar observed by millions of Christians around the world celebrates Christmas from December 25 until January 6, which is Epiphany. The word Epiphany means manifestation or revelation. And the gospel stories of Epiphany, like the visit of the Magi, the baptism of Jesus, the wedding at Cana, are manifestations of God's glory in the person of Jesus. So Epiphany connects that season of Christmas in which we celebrate Christ's birth, ultimately with the season of Lent, which we prepare to commemorate Christ's death on the cross on Good Friday and his resurrection from the dead on Easter. Epiphany then is a time that that reminds us that God came in Jesus Christ, not just for the people of Israel, but also to enlighten the nations. Epiphany celebrates the manifestation of God to the world. So the very, very first story, each Epiphany, is the story of the visit of the Magi, and it's found in Matthew chapter 2. It's on page 1497, Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So Christmas has come and gone for another year. That ever-present holiday music quieted, candles extinguished, lights and ornaments stored, trees and other greens finding their way to the curbside. This post-holiday emptiness kind of settles in. Our festivities, a distant memory. Just then, when our imaginations are stilled, these strangers stumble in. If there were headlines in that time, they just might read, Pagan searchers discover Jesus through astrology. Maybe we didn't read it that way in Sunday school, but this is what the Gospel of Matthew gives us. Who are these guys? 
these Johnny-come-latelys barging in asking, where is he? The Gospel writer Matthew tells us the story in a a rather matter-of-fact fashion, but there's anything but ordinary things here. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. We may routinely include these characters in our children's Christmas pageants, but it's very clear they have little to do with shepherds and angels. True, these outsiders add a dash of the exotic, some color for the stable, a spectacle of robes and turbans and gold-embroidered finery. Perhaps the spices they bring offer an aroma that's just right for this child king so recently born in a manger bed. Except Matthew's Gospel offers us no such narrative. These visitors aren't kings. There's no whiff of royalty about them. If they had some connection to a Persian court, we don't know about it. And there aren't three of them. Despite lingering legends of Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar, it's all legend, we don't know if there were three or seven or twelve magi from the east. We don't know who they are or where exactly they came from or how long it took them to travel to Bethlehem or how old Jesus was when they got there. But we do know this. Something beyond called them tugged at their hearts. Their night sky searching discovered something that captured their imaginations to begin this trek west. Where is the one who is born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In the ancient world where streetlights didn't pollute the view, many people studied the stars and planets. Their world believed that all things were interconnected, that heaven and earth were mirrors of each other. When something important happened on earth, they expected to see it reflected in the heavens. And vice versa, when something remarkable showed up in the stars, they were certain a remarkable event had occurred on earth. What was this heavenly event? Haley's comet appeared in 11 to 12 BC, much too early for this story. Perhaps a supernova caught their attention. Most likely it was the planets Jupiter and Saturn. In 7 BC, these planets came into conjunction with each other three times. And T. Wright notes that Jupiter was known as the royal or kingly planet. And Saturn was thought to represent the Jews. For these magi, it was an easy conclusion. A new king of the Jews has been born. These astronomer astrologers, the ancient equivalent of magicians, tried to get a handle on present and future events by gazing at the stars. Now, perhaps today, they would write horoscopes. Pagan outsiders, see, they weren't Jews. They were Gentiles. And their profession was hardly mainstream. In fact, in Israel's opinion, they would be called idolaters. Some translations call them wise men, but the Jews would have thought them as the height of unwisdom. One commentator notes, the Old Testament actually provides even choicer language for such persons. The Bible condemns magi types as idolatrous deceivers to be avoided by godly folk. Indeed, a Jewish rabbi, not long before the birth of Jesus, said... He who learns from a magi is worthy of death. They came in search of the king of the Jews. 
They journey through deserts and thirst of body and soul to discover their heart's affection. For they have been searching in hope, longing to find the answer to the sign they discovered in the stars. You see, it's not some cozy picture book story we've often associated with the Magi bringing gifts to the Jesus in a stable. Captured by God's starlit revelation, these outsiders make their way to Jerusalem. Unnamed, unnumbered, they come. As the prophets said, nations would. Outsiders searching for a king. And when they get to Jerusalem, they discover a king under threat. The most logical place to find a king would be at the capital. But when the Magi show up, political dynamite explodes. It quickly becomes clear that the man in royal robes who stood before them was driven by fear. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews, they ask. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. Their words woke him up. King Herod sat upright in attention. His eyes grew wide as snakes. Herod the Great was a so-called king of the Jews when Jesus was born. But talk of another king was a threat to him. King Herod was ruthless and powerful. He expressed power in two ways. He suppressed all resistance. He did it relentlessly. And he built excessively, extensively. See, Herod had a history of being nervous about competitors. Didn't he murder his wife? And he killed three sons? See, he had worked hard to become king of the Jews, even if the Jews never really accepted him. So who were these? Who was the imposter that these foreigners was talking about? Herod was the king. No matter how many enemies he crushed or Romans he placated, See, Herod never felt secure in his realm. He built huge palaces and forts around Judea. They were places of escape should his palace in Jerusalem fall. Places that would give him a sense of his power and security. King Herod built Jerusalem into a huge city with walls, a fortress, a theater, a stadium, an amphitheater. The temple complex was the highlight of his Jerusalem project. He desired to surpass the splendor of Solomon's temple. And then he built a basilica more glorious than the temple to honor himself. The Herodian, southeast of Bethlehem, was erected on a man-made hill. Thousands of workers built up the land, and then he built a circular fortress and palace at the top. The third largest palace in the world. There was a swimming pool in the lower complex that was so big, Herod was known to sail a, a small boat on it. The fortress of Masada on the west side of the Dead Sea was built on the top of a large rock cliff. It was nearly impossible to attack. This fortress had 15 storehouses of food, weapons, and supplies. Cisterns held millions of gallons of water. Some say Herod had stockpiled enough materials to to supply thousands of men for up to 10 years. Finally, though, Jerusalem was his most impressive project. Caesarea Maritima on the, the coast of the Mediterranean showed off his incredible construction skills. Caesarea eventually became the Roman capital of the Judean province. The city had planned streets, underground sewage system, an aqueduct, a Roman temple, an amphitheater. It was one of those impressive harbors of the ancient world. 
Herod the Great. Indeed. But he was even more Herod the King of Great Fear. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Entrenched in power, he feared for himself. He figured everyone was out to get him, worried that he would lose whatever he had acquired. He was so obsessed with protecting himself, he couldn't even hear or see the good news of these magi. He was only afraid of the arrival of something that might bring freedom to others. He reminds me of the white witch, the evil queen of Narnia and C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She dominated the land of Narnia, held it tight in her grip. Because of her, it was a, a country that was always winter but never Christmas. And then come Peter, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, signs that Aslan is on the move. And the signs begin to show. Winter was thawing. Father Christmas began to make his round. In the forest, squirrels, a dwarf, satyrs, and pick fox were picnicking. Suddenly, the white witch shows up in her sleigh. What's the meaning of this, she demands. And the frightened creatures could only tell her that Father Christmas had been by. Well, roared the witch, he's not been here. He cannot have been here. How dare you? Say you've been lying and you shall now be forgiven. But they couldn't lie. He had been there. And even though they suggested a toast to the witch, she instantly turned the forest party into statutes of stone. Herod, the king of the Jews, would hear nothing of a rival king. His was the power. His the throne. King Herod was disturbed. And talk of any other king was a threat to his rule. And then along comes Matthew's story to turn everything on its head. The reach of God's grace extends to these most unlikely visitors. These odd magi attracted to Christ's birth are only the first of a long stream of outsiders whom this child will reach. But notice the paradox. See, if the Magi are outsiders coming in, Matthew lets us know that the insiders are soon found out. Notice the upside-down manner God reveals the true king to these pagan astrologers. A disturbed Herod turns to the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He ducks away from the Magi and confers with the clergy. And they whip out their reference scrolls and concordances and Bible dictionaries. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's ironic, really. Scandalous, perhaps. The insiders, these Jewish teachers, and even the one called King of the Jews, should have known. They had the scriptures. They knew the prophecies. In Bethlehem, in Judea. But they didn't go and worship. And the outsiders, these superstitious searchers who were following some heavenly light, hear this word of God, God's revelation in the scriptures, and they act. They're convicted. They're the ones that Israel would have thought undeserving, and they become the first guests to the newborn king. 
In fact, the gifts that they bring, gold and frankincense and myrrh, are exactly the kind of thing people in the ancient world would consider as appropriate presents to bring to kings or even gods. It's all so upside down. The original readers of Matthew's words would never have welcomed these magi. How could these foreigners, these astrologers no less, be some of the first to mingle so freely with the one that Matthew was calling God's Christ? How could these parlor trick magicians condemned by Scripture be welcomed into the presence of the Messiah? Any person with a holy bone in her body would have condemned them. See, the people of God were to be a uniform group, right? Filled with spiritual pedigree, family lines, a narrow view of all things legalistic and ritualistic. But that's not Matthew's story. It's not Matthew's way and it's not God's way. God shatters the boundaries of race and religion, of culture and tradition to bring outsiders in. Perhaps you'll recall, Matthew starts his gospel with a dry-as-dust reading of Jesus' family tree. Except right in the middle of that litany of ancestors, he inserts four women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, that is, Bathsheba. Each of whom had something foreign or scandalous connected to her. See, Matthew simply wants his Jewish readers to know, he wants us to know, that the family that produced the Messiah had plenty of skeletons in the closet. Because Matthew knew that God was up to something much bigger than saving a bunch of people who all looked and acted and thought exactly alike. Scott Jose notes that Matthew ends the first chapter, the story of Jesus' genealogy and birth, by asserting that the child's name was Emmanuel which means God with us. And then in this second chapter, notes Jose, Matthew points out that the us includes the likes of these pseudo-science, quasi-religious astrologers from Baghdad. As Jose says, apparently Matthew's trying to strike a universal tone in his gospel. He wants not just men, but women included. Not just Israelites, but people from all nations. Not just those whose lives conform to the standard shape of orthodoxy, but even magi who could not have seemed less likely candidates for God's love. The reach of God's grace, as the Gospels reveal to us, includes Samaritan adulterers and immoral prostitutes Greasy tax collectors, despised Roman soldiers, and ostracized lepers. Makes me wonder who in our neighborhood is in reach of God's grace. If Jesus was born King of the Jews, clearly His rule is not limited to the Jewish people. Now in these magi we find a sign of what's to come. In fact, at the end of his gospel, Matthew tells of Jesus' commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. 
Emmanuel would be with them while they spread out to make disciples of Persian folks and Egyptian folks and Roman folks and Greek folks and African folks and all kinds of folks that the disciples didn't even know existed in other parts of the world. We don't know what happened to the Magi. As far as we know, there's no conversion here. Maybe they just went back to Persia and did their stargazing thing for the rest of their lives. We do know this. God's grace reaches far beyond our boundaries, our fences, our limitations. See, salvation's not a members-only club meant only for those in the know. Matthew turns all of our stories on our heads. Those who appear on the inside just might be out and those on the outside in. With God, we can expect the unexpected. Epiphany, revelation, manifestation, starting with the Magi, points us to the reality that God's grace reaches far beyond us. Christ comes to enlighten the nations. Here's God's revelation, God's epiphany to us today. The church, the church of Jesus Christ, the true King, is filled with a motley hodgepodge of all kinds of different people. And together we all stand around the Christ all called by God's grace. In fact, we gather around this table to give thanks to Jesus Christ, who is the only true ruler of our lives. We come to the one who became cosmic king of kings and lord of lords because he sacrificed himself. Those gifts of incense and myrrh brought by the Magi are not only gifts fit for a king, they are also gifts fit for a burial. Not exactly typical baby shower presents. But at this table, we remember that Jesus is the king born to die. To die to draw all people to himself. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the gospel tells us that God, by the leading of a star, manifested the Savior to the peoples of the earth. And by the power that enabled Christ to change water into wine, made known his glory to his disciples. So we come to this joyful feast of the Lord to again be transformed. With joy we praise you, gracious God, for you've created heaven and earth. You've made us in your image and you've kept covenant with us even when we fell into sin. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who came as the light of the world. In him you revealed your glory to the nations. You sent a star to guide seekers of wisdom to Bethlehem that they might worship Christ. Your signs and witnesses in every age lead people from every place to worship Him. And so God of unending grace, You sent Your Son, our Savior, to know sorrow and death. He bore upon Himself the sin of the world at Calvary, betrayed, deserted, 
crucified. On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it, gave thanks, and he broke it. And he shared it with his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took a cup And he blessed it and he said, this cup is a new covenant of my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. God of wisdom and light, send your Holy Spirit upon us and upon this bread and wine. As we come together to eat at your table, we offer ourselves to you in praise and thanksgiving for all your mighty acts. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.